Um, for today, we are going to be in Psalm 115. So if you want to open your, your copy of the scriptures there, um, that's where we're going to be um, spending most of our time this morning. Um, I'd just like to say thank you for, for having me here. I, I think Trixie and I were talking this week. Well, I know Trixie and I were talking this week. But uh, we think the last time we were here was when we got married in this building, um, which was a great day for us. I know a lot of you guys lost a bet that day, so it's a little bit of a sore subject. Uh, but um, it, fond memories here, and it's, it's great to be back with you guys. Um, so we're going to go ahead, and I'm going to read all of Psalm 115. Um, it, it's, it's 18 verses, so um, I will read, and if you would follow along, um, we'll pray and we'll, we'll get into it. It says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. The eyes they have but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more. You and your children, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down in silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. <clears throat> praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, so we come to Psalm 115. Um, and I don't know where you guys were last week, but um, hopefully this isn't too char jarring of a transition. And we see that God is at work in our lives and in the world at large. This psalm was written in, um, for times of trouble, expressing faith in God and the futility of turning from Him. So we see the power and we see the plan of God mapped out in this psalm, not in specifics, but in general. We also see the futility of the things that we put in God's place when they're fully examined. So as we look at Psalm 115, first three verses, we see that God is to be glorified alone. Now, this psalm was written, uh, we believe, sometime after the Babylonian captivity, after the children of Israel had come back from, from Babylon and um, rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the temple um, during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. We believe it was some, written sometime after that. We don't have a specific um, reference to that in the text. So we don't want to be too dogmatic about that. Um, this isn't like Psalm 51 or 52 where there's a stamp there that says, here's when this psalm was written. But it's generally believed this was written sometime after the Babylonian captivity had ended. But what we do know is that it was written in a time of national trouble and of upheaval where the surrounding nations would have seen Israel's faith in God as a vain one. So he says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. 
because of your mercy and because of your truth. The psalmist opens by, by um, informing us who he is seeking to glorify with his thoughts and with, with this writing. And it's the Lord. He's saying this isn't about us. This isn't about me. It's about God. It's about what he does. It's about his mercy and it's about his truth. Now, you notice that as he goes into this, he doesn't say, God, have mercy on us. God, tell us the truth. He praises the fact that God does have mercy and that God is truth. See, sometimes when we approach God, we ask God for things as if he's looking for our suggestions. When we should be praising God for the things he already is. I don't know, God's not merciful to me because I, he, I asked him to do it, because I convinced him to be merciful to me. God's merciful to me because God's merciful, right? It's got nothing to do with me. Because if God searched the entire planet, seven billion people, for someone to be merciful to, and he did it on merit, there's a very slim chance he would pick me. You guys know me. <laughs> You're like, yeah, actually there's no chance he would pick you. All right? I don't need to ask God to be merciful. God already is merciful. I don't need ask, to ask God to tell me the truth. God already tells the truth. So the psalmist starts by examining two of the things that God is and praising him for that. Even in a time of trouble, even in a time where, where the nations around them are saying, your faith is in vain. What are you doing? Why are you worshiping this God? The psalmist says, God, I know you're merciful and I know you're truthful. And I praise you for those things. Indeed, if we look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see that God acts often on his own behalf through the nation of Israel to bring glory to himself. If we look at Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Later in the book of Isaiah, Chapter 48, verses 9 through 11, he says, For my name's sake I will defer my anger, and for my praise I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I will do it. For how shall my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? God acted on behalf of Israel because of who he was, not because of who Israel was. It wasn't because of their merits. It wasn't because of, of how great they were that God acted on their behalf. It was because of himself. It's because that's who God is. It's because that's how God operates. And so we see that played out in the beginning of this psalm. We can see that played out in our own lives, right? Romans 5.8, um, you have to learn it if you go through Awana, which means I did. <laughs> um, it says, uh, God demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2 refers to the fact that we as believers were dead in our sins and trespasses, but Christ has made us alive. It's not about who we are. It's about who God is. It's why he acts on our behalf. It's why he was acting on behalf of Israel here in the Old Testament. So in rebelling against God and thus incurring his wrath, Israel had profaned his name to the other nations. Now, if we look back through the Old Testament, we can look at passages like uh, Numbers chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 36. We can see that God often acts on behalf of Israel because they're his people. And their successes 
are for his glory. But we come to this mocking question in verse 2. It says, why should the Gentiles say, where is your God? Where is your God? You see, the Israelites didn't have a statue that they could point to and they could say, that's our God. They didn't have um, some graven image, some altar that, that they would um, sacrifice people on and say, this is what makes our God happy. They had the temple, they had the Ark of the Covenant, they had the Holy of Holies, but they didn't have something that was visible to the general population that represented God. And so the people were denying the power and the ability to intervene and even the existence of Israel's God because they didn't have some big cool statue that represented their God. That they could say, there he is, big golden fella. The psalmist reminds us where God is. And it would do well for us to remember where God is. You know, 2020 has been a bit of a year. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Um, I have, right? Um, I didn't go to work for like three months. It was pretty cool, but um, I understand it didn't work out very well for everyone. Um, <clears throat> here's the deal is in times like these, it's very easy for people to point at Christians. It's very easy to, for people to point at those who have faith in God and say, well, where's God now? Where's God now? Why would God allow this to transpire if he is awake, if he's aware, if he's powerful, if he has the ability to intervene, then where is he? Well, I'll tell you where he is. He's in heaven. And he does whatever he pleases. Now that might seem like God acts flippantly, right? Because if you say, well, Brian does whatever he pleases, that typically is probably not going to be like a set of things that, you know, a normal adult should do, um, right? And in fact, it changes from time to time with, with us as people, right? Um, a, two decades ago, I was 13-year-old Brian, and if 13-year-old Brian did whatever he pleased, that would be different than 23-year-old Brian doing whatever he pleased, which is different than 33-year-old Brian doing whatever he pleased, right? Because I've changed through the years. Um, for those of you who knew 13-year-old Brian, sorry. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is God does as he pleases. And we could say, well, well, that's not good. Doesn't that mean that God just kind of does whatever he wants and we're left here to deal with the consequences? Here's the thing. We know what pleases God. Bringing glory to himself. Right? It's not a mystery what motivates God. It's not, there's not like some mysterious plan at work here. We know what God is trying to accomplish in the world. He's trying to bring glory to himself. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, he's trying to reconcile the world to himself. We know God's plan. When it says God's in heaven and he does whatever he pleases, that shouldn't make us say, oh no, what's he going to do next? That should make us say, okay, I know what that is. I know where God is going. Eventually, he will bring this world to an end. He'll destroy his enemies, and he'll walk with us. That's good. 
you guys can smile. I know some of you have masks on. Some of you don't, though, and you're not smiling. I don't know why. Because that is good news. God has a plan, and he's executing it. He won't be deterred, okay? God's not going to wake up one morning and forget the plan. God's not going to wake up one morning. Actually, God never sleeps. So we're not going to wake up one morning, and God will have forgotten the plan. And I'm not going to wake up one morning and God say, hey, guys, new plan. Guess what? That whole salvation thing wasn't working. We're going with something new, okay? God is consistent in his character. God is consistent in what he wants. And so when it says he's in heaven and he does whatever he pleases, guess what? We already know what that is. He's working in our lives and he's working in the world to bring glory to himself. To bring sinners to salvation, to make his enemies his friends, so that ultimately one day... Those who believe in him will live with him forever in heaven. That's what God pleases. We see how that plays out in our lives, right? Romans 8.28a is a lot of people's favorite verse because it says, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. And we can say, everything's working together for my good. That's great. I love God. I'm going to have everything I want, right? That's not where it ends, though. Actually, there's a lot of the Bible after that point. Um, we just like to stop that point because it makes it seem like everything's going to work in our favor, right? It says, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we say, okay, well, what's God's purpose? We should say that. What's God's purpose? It's to make us like Jesus. That we should become like his son, that he may be the firstborn of many brethren. So we know what God's working in our lives to accomplish, right? It's not a mystery. I don't have to sit around and say, oh man, I wonder what God's trying to do to me. He's trying to make me more like Jesus. He's working in our lives to make us more like Jesus. He's working in the world to bring glory to himself and to bring sinners to repentance. He's orchestrating everything to accomplish that. Why he does it in the matter he does it isn't really for me to figure out. It's for me to turn in faith and say, God, I know you're working to bring glory to yourself. Help me to do that in my life. So often I get caught up in the circumstances of my life. I'm not going to put that on you guys, but I know I do. And I say, well, why would God let this happen? Why are these things happening? This is so bad. This is not good. I'm unhappy about this. Guess what? He's doing it to bring glory to himself. And I would do well to remember that. And we all would do well to remember that in times where there are, is trouble. And there's been plenty of trouble in 2020, hasn't there? Whoops. That was unintentional. You know, I work in a uh, Southern Baptist church, which is a lot like this church. Um, you know, only, you know, we do dances and all kinds of crazy stuff. No, <laughs> it's a lot like this church, but there's a phrase that I've heard a lot of people say, um, you know, and they'll say, well, brother, I've read the back of the book and we win. All right. I know that's a very stereotypical Southern Baptist accent, but guess what? It is what they sound like. All right. <laughs> And here's my only issue with that phrase is, what part of the book did you read where God was losing, okay? 
You read Psalm 115. It's written at a time where it would be very easy to say, well, things are going well for, not going well for God's people, right? Or you read the book of, I don't know, any of the prophets, and you can say, well, this is not going well for God's people. Guess what? That doesn't mean God's losing, okay? God is undefeated. You could flip open any page in the Bible and read what's on that page, as long as it's not like the glossary, and guess what? God will be winning on that page. Everything that happens is according to God's master plan. We don't find pages where God panics and goes, oh no, they got me. They tricked me. Uh-oh. Plan B. You know, it doesn't say, and then God held it up with the angels and was like, okay, guys, this is bad. <laughs> this is really bad. We need to do some PR here because things have gone disastrously off the rails. We read from Genesis to Revelation about a God who is constantly at work to accomplish what he intends to do. And guess what? He's never dissuaded. He's never put off. He's never defeated. We read every page of this book, and we see that God is winning, and he will win, and he's overcoming his enemies. And there's nothing that his enemies can do to stop him, try as they might. So the first thing we see is that God is to be glorified alone that there's no one like him, that there's nothing that's going to stop him, that he's at work in the world and in our lives to accomplish his purposes, and we already know what those are. But the second thing we see is that idolatry is a fruitless abomination. So this psalmist, I don't know who he was, but I love this guy, because he says, listen, our God's in heaven doing what he pleases. Let's talk about your gods for a second, all right? Because they're dumb. He literally says they're dumb. I didn't, I'm not paraphrasing. All right? Let's talk about what you believe for a second because our God's in heaven. We have a track record. This, this psalm was probably written about a thousand years after um, God had led them out of captivity in Exodus. In Exodus. Yeah, right? Yeah, Exodus. <laughs> it's one of the books of the Bible. <laughs> Um, I know all of them, just in case you guys are wondering. Okay, so they have this thousand-year track record, even further back than that through Abraham, of God acting on their behalf and doing things for them. But the nation of Israel can look and they can say, we have receipts. What's your God ever done for you? Because after displaying that God is orchestrating everything, even sometimes the troubles Israel experiences, the psalmist goes on the attack against those who mock God. Now, idolatry was a major part of Middle Eastern religion at the time. In fact, there is always this idea that there, there should be a physical representation tied to God. So one of the Ten Commandments is, don't do that. Because their first inclination was going to be, all right, let's make a physical representation. Right? That's why when Moses is on the mountain, they make a golden calf. That's why the, the families of, of Jacob and David, some of them still had household idols. Because they wanted a physical representation of God. They wanted this idol that they could say, look, there's God. Now I know. Okay? The problem with those idols is the same as the problem with a lot of things that people put in God's place today, right? 
and that is they're worthless and they're going to go away someday. These idols that, that people worshipped back then, I don't know if you know this, but we don't see an idol of Baal on every street corner anymore, do we? You know, we don't have Ashtaroths just kind of floating around in the, the world. You know why? Because they've all been destroyed. This was thousands of years ago. They're all dust now. They've all been destroyed. None of them exist anymore. They put all of their trust and all their faith in this thing that we can look and read a history book and say, oh yeah, that must have been weird. But they're not around anymore because they went away. Turns out they weren't the real God because they could be destroyed. They could be defeated. They could be neglected and eventually rust and fall apart and break and be forgotten. And now we, we, we dig them up sometimes in archaeological digs and say, oh, hey, this is cool. This is what they used to worship. It's not around anymore. But that's the same thing that we do today. We put all of our faith in things that are not going to deliver and that eventually are going to fall apart. We live in a time where people will put all of their trust in having a great job, right? I got good insurance. I've got a great job. That can be taken away. For a lot of people, it has been taken away. People say, well, the economy is doing great. And my 401k is booming. That can be taken away. Okay? I graduated college in a year where it was taken away. And it was super fun to try and find a job then. <laughs> People will say, well, listen, I'm healthy. And, and you know, I, I, I've got my physical health to rely on. That can be taken away. You can say, you know, I have this person that, that I can rely on to always support me. That can be taken away. Anything you put your trust in, any basket you put your eggs in except for God can be taken away. Idolatry is fruitless. And that's what the writer points out here. He says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. He says, ultimately, these idols can do nothing, and so if you trust in them, you're going to be like them. You're going to be destroyed. There will be nothing left because you've put all of your trust in something that could not deliver. Here's the issue we face is society will tell us all these things can deliver, right? If you have a house already, guess what? You need a bigger one. That'll make you happy. Oh, your big house doesn't quite make you happy, get a boat. Oh, well, you know what? You go out on the boat and it's this nice lake. You need a house on the lake, right? That'll make you happy. And then the day you pull your boat into your house at the lake, guess what? You look at your neighbor's yard. He's got a bigger boat. Well, go buy a bigger one then. Then you'll be happy once you have better stuff than everybody else. It's the lie that we're sold from day one. All right, I don't need to, I, I can't even remember the first time I saw a commercial or heard a commercial on the radio telling me what I needed to make myself happy. 
Guess what? I could have all the money in the world. I could buy all those things. If I didn't have God, I'd still be miserable. If you guys who know me go, yeah, you are pretty miserable. No, I'm a pretty fun-loving guy. But the fact of the matter is, if you put your trust in all those things, it can all be taken away. Those things will all fail you someday. You can spend and spend and spend, and people have spent and spent and spent to end up as miserable as they were before they had anything. But there are two very dangerous ways in which idolatry can infect our churches. It's called a teaser. I'm going to take a drink. All right. The first is, if our worship of the living God mimics the worship that these people participated in of dead, lifeless objects. When we look at the religion surrounding the people of Israel at this time, these people worshipped lifeless objects, right? They, 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 that's what the writer points out. Look, you can carve a mouth on that, 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 that wooden totem all you want. It's never going to talk to you. It's lifeless. It's dead. It doesn't have life in it. It was a transactional relationship, right? They would do things, rituals, to please their gods in order for their gods to favor them. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, right? We see Elijah and the prophets of Baal going head to head, right? And the prophets of Baal say, well, if we do this ritual to please Baal, he'll burn our offering like we want him to. But we have to do something to make him happy first. It's a transaction. I do this and God gives me this, right? That's how they viewed it. And so they would participate in, in things, um, you know, that they would cut themselves, they would do all these different weird rituals. Sometimes they would even um, participate in human sacrifice because they wanted to make their God happy in order to get something from him. They say, I do this, God does this, it's a transaction, we're both happy. Let me tell you this, Christianity is not a transactional relationship. I don't do things for God to make him happy so that he'll give me something. You know why? Because I've already received the greatest gift God could give me. If salvation's not enough for me, nothing else God gives me will be. If I view... Coming to church, giving my offering, doing good deeds is a transaction so that I can get something from God. I'm viewing it all wrong. I'm viewing God like a lifeless object. It's like an ATM. If I put my card in and hit the right numbers, I'll get money, right? If I don't do that, I don't get any money. Um, so when we look at God... As a transactional relationship, I do this for God, God does this for me, we're both happy. We're worshiping an idol. We're not worshiping the living God. That's not the God we find in the Bible. The God we find in the Bible wants us to have a relationship with him. He doesn't want a transaction. He doesn't want me to show up when I need something, give him some, some, some ritual or some gesture, and then he rewards me, and I say, now we're all good. I'll see you next time I need something, God. Right? He's his father. He's our father. We're his children. 
Now my dad's sitting there going, you ask me for stuff all the time, and I do. But he gives because he loves me. He gives because he loves us. He doesn't give because we merit it. He doesn't give because we've somehow earned it. He gives out of his kindness and out of his mercy and out of his grace because he loves us. Not because I showed up at church on Sunday and I sang all the right words to the song. Which, by the way, I didn't because uh, when I learned to God be the glory in the third verse, it said transport and not victory. So I don't know what happened there. (laughs) I guess hymn translation has caught up with Bible translation. But when we see our relationship with God as a transactional relationship, we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping an idol. We're worshiping our idea of God. We're worshiping a God that we can put in a box and we can say, okay, I'll open the box, God, for a minute here because I want to talk to you about what I need and then you're going back in the box so I can live my life however I want. The second thing is that we can, we can, we can make a giftedness and, 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 uh, and talent an idol. We can come to worship the performer or the words or the book or someone's thoughts rather than God who's supposed to be the object. Worshiping and building up a speaker or a musician or an author or anyone else who's trying to to, uh, tell us about God to a point where they're higher than God is dangerous and it's perilous and it's something that we have to watch out for in the world today because there are many people who will tell you that they're telling you about God and then they'll tell you about a God you're not going to find in the Bible. They're going to tell you about a God you're not going to find in the Gospels. They'll tell you about a God that's going to make you feel good though. They're going to tell you about a God who's out for you to make you feel better and out for your enemies to punish them because they're bad. Right? They won't tell you about a God who's gracious and merciful to all and wants all to come to repentance. I know it's very windy out. It's idolatry. When we, when we elevate man's idea of God to higher than the God that we find in the Bible. Listen, I don't stand up here and, and, and think I'm going to tell you guys how God is. All right? Because God is way past my understanding. Um, manual shift cars are beyond my understanding. So for sure God is. But God reveals himself to us through his word. And if we accept a substitute above the God that's been revealed through his word, we're participating in idolatry. We're participating in worshiping our idea of what God should be rather than what God is. It's putting something in God's place. That's idolatry. And so as we look, we see that God alone is to be glorified. There are no substitutes. That idolatry is fruitless and abominable. You can't put something in God's place, even if it's your idea of God. That doesn't work. That's not how God operates. The last thing we see is that God is glorified when we trust Him and we praise Him. So the psalmist closes this passage by exhorting three groups of people. 
He says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, not, not you, Aaron, so put your hand down. <laughs> trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He calls on Israel, the population as a whole. He calls on the house of Aaron, the priests who would be leading them in worship. And he calls on all who trust in the Lord. It's not just about the, the, the house of Israel. It's not just about the house of Aaron. It's anyone who trusts in God or who fears God. Trust him. He is your help. He is your shield. We're called to trust God. How does that relate to the beginning of this passage? Sometimes we don't understand what's going on. Most of the time, we don't understand what's going on. Okay? We have a God who exists in, 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 in a capacity beyond our comprehension. God is infinite. I'm not. We're still called to trust him, though, even if we don't understand him. It's sometimes hard to trust something we don't understand, right? And yet... Here we are, called to trust in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both great and small. We have a track record of reasons why we should trust God. Do we not? We all, as individuals, can point at circumstances in our lives and say, well, God brought me through that. And so I know I can trust him to bring me through what's next. Some of us have lost spouses. Some of us have fa faced health problems. Some of us have faced the loss of a job. We've all faced something, though, that we can point to and we can say, God brought me through that, so I know he can bring me through what's next because he has acted on my behalf in that situation, and so I know he'll act on my behalf in the next situation. It might not always be resolved in a way that we like, but the fact of the matter is we can look back through our lives and we can say, God has acted on my behalf many times before, and I know he'll do it again. It's not up to me to figure out how that's going to work. It's up to me to trust that when God brings me through something, it will be for my betterment even if it hurts sometimes, even if it sometimes is unpleasant to come through. These people had, had, had a thousand years of history of God bringing them through stuff. It wasn't always easy. It wasn't always pleasant. You know, Sometimes the Assyrian army would get right to the gates of Jer Jerusalem. Right? Because they needed to remember that God was acting on their behalf. It wasn't always an easy romp through the roses, but God was acting on their behalf all throughout the Old Testament. Even when they were in captivity, God was acting on their behalf. Spent 70 years in captivity, went back, right? God acted on their behalf. We can look at our lives. We can look at our lives as believers and say, God has acted on my behalf. We can look at the life of this church and say, God has acted on our behalf. Right? Some of I remember, uh, some of us remember back when we didn't have this, this nice building, right? We were in a much smaller building that always seemed to be way too hot, uh, in my opinion. And we could say, God has acted on our behalf. Look at this place. 
God is desiring to bless us. Okay? He has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He has in the past. He will again. And so as we look at, at, at the, the way this passage closes, he highlights the difference between our God and the gods of those who do not believe. Right? He says, may the Lord increase, give you increase more and more, you and your children. May, the Lord, you, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. God made us. God made me. He made you. He made all of us. Their idols were made by them. Right? They worshipped their own creation. We worship our creator. There's a difference there. It should look different. It should function differently. When, create, when the creation worships creation, it's robbed of the glories of the creator, right? When we decide, I've got to worship some creation because that makes me feel more comfortable rather than worshiping the creator, guess what? We're denying ourselves knowledge and a relationship with the creator. Why would we settle for something cheaper when the real thing is out there? There's a distinct difference between the fate of those who praise idols and those who praise God. Those who worship idols, as stated in verse 8, are like the idols they worship. They meet the same fate. They depart. They go away. They're silenced. They're doomed. There is no future for them. Look at those who worship the true and living God. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Those who worship the true and living God experience the same fate as the true and living God. Eternity. Right? Living in his presence. Life forever in his kingdom where there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no suffering. So our question we have to ask ourselves today is who and what do we worship? Because if we're worshiping the true and living God, it means that we have to come to several conclusions, all right? So maybe some of us here today feel like we need to do things to merit God's love and mercy. You need to accomplish stuff to merit God's love and mercy, or maybe we already have accomplished what we need to accomplish to merit God's love and mercy. What I can assure you is that if you stood before God with your argument as to why you deserve His love and His mercy, you would fail. Now, I don't know all of you. Some of you may be lawyers. But here's what I know about God. No one's ever won an argument with Him. Okay? No one's ever gone to God and changed God's mind. Said, no, God, you're wrong. I'm right. Here's what you need to learn from me. It's never happened. Okay? In fact, Paul says in Romans 11, who can be God's counselor? Who's ever given something to God that God can repay it to that person? Nobody is going to stand before God and say, well, here's why I deserve your love, God. You're wrong about me. I'm right, and I'm about to learn you something. 
You can dedicate your life to whatever ideal or mantra or creed or whatever you want, but at the end of your life, if those things are not based in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you're going to fail. You're going to go away. You will be doomed. Just like the things you dedicated your life to. Now, some of you may be listening and you may be a believer, but there may be some idea of God that you have put up as your idol creeping into your worship of the true and living God. You might say, well, well here's the God I like. <laughs> I don't really like the rest of this stuff in here. I like, I like you know, this God. I like this, this particular uh, statement that God makes, so I'm going I'm to base everything on that and ignore everything else. Okay? God can't be put in a box. God can't be shrunk down into a size where I can control him and where I can speak for him. God speaks for himself. If you're worshiping your idea of God, that's idolatry. It's dangerous. It's not, it's not going to bear any fruit. It's fruitless in all forms. So if you see God as someone you manipulate for your own gain, you're not worshiping the real God. You're worshiping an idol that you've put in the place of God. It's dangerous, and it's pointless, and it's abomination. And the last thing we see is that we live in times that can be troubling. Listen, I've, I've, I've heard so many say, people say, in these unprecedented times, right? It's, it's not unprecedented. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, everything has happened before and everything will happen again, right? There have been pandemics before. There's been uh, upheaval in cultures before. All these things have happened before. None of this is taking God by surprise, okay? He's not sitting there like, what do I do now? I've really messed this up. Okay? None of it. Yet we can look around and we can say, okay, this is troubling to me. We should look around and we should say, this world is not reflective of its creator. And that should trouble us. It shouldn't bring us to fear. It shouldn't bring us to worry. But it, we should be able to say, look, this is not a reflection of the God who created it. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world today, but here is the encouragement we get from this passage. You ready? There's still much, as much certainty in God's promises today as there was January 1st, 2020, as there was January 1st, 2019, as there was before the first time you'd heard the word coronavirus or COVID. There's still much as much certainty that God's going to do what he promised today as there was then. God doesn't balk on his promises. We can trust God now as we've trusted him in the past because he's brought us through everything we faced in the past and we know he will bring us through what we face in the future. May not always be in a way we like. May not always be in a way that I'm physically here with my heart beating. It may be one day he calls me home. I look forward to that. But the fact of the matter is I know I can trust God to bring me through whatever's next because he's done so in the past. We worship a God who is in heaven and does as he pleases. And that's encouraging. It should reassure us. 
That should mean that whatever chaos goes on around us, we can look to the God of heaven and we can say, I know you're doing as you please, and I know you have a plan that's right for us, for me, and for the world. We need to trust that. So let's pray.